Chapter 13 is a big chapter. We got a lot to do, but let me try to frame what's going to happen from chapter 13 forward. Um, have you ever watched like apocalyptical movies where it's like maybe a virus or something, zombies? World War Z? Who's watched World War Z? Okay. How about I Am Legend? Okay. So those kind of movies where something happens and then it's like you see the virus spreads, someone gets on a plane, flies to another location, boom, the virus spreads and just keeps doing that until like 99% of the world's population is dead. I alone am alive and I save the world, right? That's every kind of apocalyptical virus movie that it just kind of starts ground zero, it spreads out and then takes over. That's what we're gonna see from chapter 13 forward. It's like Jerusalem started it, then there was a launch out to this city called Antioch. And from there, Christianity is just gonna spread and hit these pockets, the major cities. So Christianity did not start in rural, uneducated areas. Christianity actually started in the major educated places, the Antiochs, the Philippi, uh, the Alexandria, the Rome. And then from there, it actually went out. And by AD 350, the Roman Empire was 50% Christian. So when Constantine makes his edict of toleration in 323 AD, people say, well, he became a believer. That's possible. I think he saw the right on the wall. It was like, this thing is spreading. As any good politician would do, I'm gonna get on their side. And so he kind of joins in with something he was already seeing. It's massively growing. I'm gonna join in with this thing. So the virus now is spreading and it's gonna keep spreading and hitting these spots and growing and growing. So that's kind of what looking forward we're gonna see. So let's jump in verse one, chapter 13. Now there were in the church at Antioch, prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. We did this two Sundays ago. Um, Just a crazy crew, right? You've got Simon, who's called Niger, which means black. He's from Africa. You've got Lucius, who's from Libya, Africa as well. His name means red. You've got Menaean, who's the adopted brother of the king. You know, he's very famous. And you've got Saul, who's like an Amish guy. So it's like the most, it's, remember MTV, the real world? Okay, it reminds me of that. Like, let's get the craziest crew we can, put them in a house together, lock the door and see what happens. And those shows always went south. It was always like, you know, fights and craziness and that's what made people watch it. But this is something way different. God just grabs the most diverse people. He puts them together and there's a unity and a bond and a fellowship and a common goal that's brilliant and beautiful. And that we saw that on Sunday, it's awesome. But it says here in verse two, that they were worshiping the Lord. Why do we worship Jesus? 
Like, why do we come into this place and sing these songs? It's very unique to Christianity. There's not a lot of other groups that do that, right? If you've ever watched a TED Talk, the guy doesn't go there on, on the TED Talk and be like, hey, before I start today, would you guys join with me in a couple of songs? If you know the words, please sing along. We're gonna start with Led Zeppelin, Stairway to Heaven. Let's go, <laughs> right? You'd be like, that is strange. Why are we doing this? And yet we do that here. And we're like, you know, you go to probably just about any church anywhere and the songs may be different and the way that they sing may be different, but there will almost always be time of praising and worshiping Jesus. So why do we do that? Is it like Jesus had a bad day and he needs us to like encourage him? I'm just kind of bummed out today. Could you tell me how great I am? Yes, I'll tell you. I feel better now. Thank you. I won't be so mean to people. I won't smite them with a zombie apocalypse. Okay. Is that why? No. Here's why. Number one, you will worship something. The human is tuned to worship. We have to worship something. It can be sports, it can be sex, it can be money, it can be your reputation, it can be your career, it can be acceptance. We're gonna worship something. We will give our life to something. That's number one. Number two, whatever we worship, we'll become like. We will reflect what we worship. So here's the best example I have of that. If you've ever had the opportunity to go and have lunch with somebody you really admire and you sit with them and you talk with them, have you ever found when you've left that, that you start doing something you saw them do? So maybe it was a phrase that they uttered. You're like, man, that is a cool phrase. And then all of a sudden you find in your next conversation, you use that phrase. Maybe it's the way they held themselves or the way that they, their mannerisms, you're like, that's a cool mannerism. It's like part of them rubs off on you and now you take that with you. We will mirror what we worship. And so the Bible says this, worship Jesus because he was the only true human that was not broken and corrupt and selfish and doing the things that hurt humanity. Worship him because when you do, you'll become like him, which is the goal of every human and the goal of believers, that we become more like him. That's why. So they worship and we'll see they become like Jesus, all right? One question I always have on this is, like it's so matter of fact, verse one is. Now there were in the church at Antioch, prophets and teachers, right? We get teachers, no doubt, it's my job. I just say, where are the prophets? Now there's a certain way of interpreting the Bible where you say, well, that's not happening anymore. I find that very difficult to prove from scripture. I find it more able to prove from the fact that we don't have them, but where are the prophets? I think prophets are really important. Like the Old Testament is full of prophets. In the New Testament, there are three places where uh, the Bible talks about the giftings and the, the callings of people. The only gift, the only calling that's in all three of those, Ephesians 4, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, the only one that's in all three of those, prophets are prophesying. Paul says this to the church at Thessalonica. He says, 
despise not prophesying, quench not the spirit. That somehow that gift is tied into a releasing of the power of God's spirit. So I say, in the church today, where are the prophets? And I'm not, I'm not talking about the TBN kind of weird thing that can happen. I, I, I'm not saying that's a prophet. But where are the real prophets? If I was to say at Edgewater where the prophets are, I don't have an answer. I, I would ask that we pray. I think prophets are really important. They call us in an exacting way to what's happening right now in our culture and how as believers we should respond. And I think that is a huge, huge missing element today in the church of America. We're the prophets. Pray that God raises up biblical, correct prophets like they had in the book of Acts. Number two, so now we've got that. Here's what happens. They're ready to go. Holy Spirit, separate these two dudes, send them off, teaching pastor, executive pastor. And they're like, okay, let's go. Verse four. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews and they had John to assist them. This is John Mark, Barnabas's nephew. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came to a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus, son of Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the truth. But Saul, who was called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, you son of the devil, right? He's the son, he calls himself the son of Jesus. Paul calls him the son of the devil. You enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy. Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him. And he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. This is the launch. They launch out. If you want to launch, here's some advice. Number one, they start with what they knew. They go to the island of Cyprus. Guess who was from Cyprus? Barnabas. So they're like, God says, go. And they're like, where are we supposed to go? I just imagine they're, I don't know. And I can see Barnabas like, hey, Cyprus is just right over there. I know that place. Let's go there. They started with who they knew. If you wanna be used in ministry, start with who you know. You don't have to go to Africa. You don't have to go to Vanuatu. You don't have to go to Mexico. You can go next door. Start with who you know. And I'd add, start with what you know. Don't try to answer questions you don't have answers for. A very good answer for people is, I don't 
No, it's the best answer you can ever give to somebody. But let me check that out. That is a great question. When we start answering questions we don't know, we often make mistakes that make people think, oh, you're clueless. Much better to say, I don't know. So number one, they start with what they knew. Cyprus, I know that place. Number two, you'll encounter a spiritual battle. Immediately, you have this guy, he's called a false prophet, a magician, Bar-Jesus is his name. You will have a spiritual battle. There's a book by M. Scott Peck. That name might ring a bell. He wrote The Road Less Traveled, which is a bestseller. But he wrote another book that I thought was really fascinating. And it's called The People of the Lie. And it's from his experience working in hospitals, working with really broken people, he's got these great stories, really messed up people. And essentially that book is this, he says this. He says, the problem with our society is not the sins of evil. The problem with our society is we don't acknowledge evil exists. That's a guy who is a clinical psychologist writing this book saying, the major problem with what I see when I start dealing with people and dealing with other professionals is everybody wants to say, no, there's no such thing as evil. When people say that to me, you know what I always say? Do you read the paper? Do you ever go outside? Right? Like what happened in Santa Fe at the high school, that's evil. I, there's no other way to put it. That's evil. Evil does exist. So M. Scott Peck said, the fact that we won't acknowledge it means that we're just turning a blind eye to something that's able then just to run its course in craziness, right? You'll have a spiritual battle. And Paul does something about it, right? The son of Elimus, or the son of Jesus, Elimus literally means the all-knowing one. So he called himself Mr. Know-it-all. So Mr. Know-it-all, this false prophet, is hooked to this governor of the land. He's probably a retired senator. That's what most people guess. Retired, goes to Cyprus, given like this position, you're the governor of Cyprus. So he's now his, he's got his ear. Very common. Nebuchadnezzar had people like that. In our own country, presidents have had people that have given them counsel that were spiritualists, right? Nixon had Gene, excuse me, <clears throat> Nixon had Gene Dixon. Reagan had Joan Quigley. These people that would, you know, go into the spirit world, wherever they did, to give answers and guidance to our presidents. So it's very common. So that's what this guy was. Elimus was this guy that was trying to give advice to this proconsul. And Rome was pluralistic, as pluralistic as you could want. They would let Every nation worshiped their gods. The only thing that they required was just say Caesar is God. And if you'll say that, do whatever you want. Totally pluralistic, except for one religion, the gospel. When the gospel comes in, there's 10, actually 10 waves of persecution, 10 different emperors that say, stamp this thing out, stamp this thing out. Even after the Edict of Toleration, Emperor Julian in 360 AD just tries to crush it out. But all it did was make it stronger and stronger and stronger. There will be, know this, there is a real true spiritual battle. In chapter 13, it's this magician. In chapter 14, we'll see it becomes physical. 
In chapter 16, it's deception. It's this spirit-filled woman, not good spirit-filled, who begins to say the wrong, trying to deceive and co-opt Christianity to her side. In chapter 19, it just goes full-blown with crazy, crazy stuff. We'll get there. No, there is a spiritual battle. You gotta know it. So here's what happens. You've got Mr. Know-it-all and Saul in verse 10 changes his name. Saul was a king in Israel's history, changes his name from Saul to Paul. Guess what Paul means? Little. So you've got Mr. Little versus Mr. Know-it-all. It's awesome. And then he goes, verse 10, just insane. You son of the devil. That's not the way to win friends and influence people right there, right? You enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy. Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? You read that and you probably say, ow, that's harsh. Paul, is that necessary? You seem like you're a little bit testy right here. Do you not have caffeine that morning? What is up with you? Let me try to phrase it like this. So last Wednesday, before we came here, my wife and I had just my four-year-old Myron. So we went and grabbed Thai food. And where we live, we live off of a country road that there's no traffic on, off a driveway, off another driveway, off a third driveway. We are back. If people come to our house, they're lost or visiting us. There's no traffic. So Myron for four and a half years has never been, he's just not around traffic. He's not around cars. That's not how he lives. So th- that's, his, that's his story. We, we're, we're leaving there. We're coming over here after dinner. And I open the door for my wife and Myron. Myron runs out and just takes off running, right? We're on 8th Street. And so I step out, I'm like, Myron, what are you doing? Stop. Like anyone that saw me would be like, whoa, what's up with you? Aren't you being harsh? Well, I know my son. I know the situation. I don't want to see him get hit by a car. He does not understand vehicles. In fact, I try to make him understand how dangerous the roads are. Every time we see roadkill, I pull over, I take him, I say, right there. Don't run in the road. That happens to people, okay? Don't do that. I'll pay for it in counseling. It's okay. He'll be alive. It might seem harsh, but the end goal is I want to see him do well. I think that's what Paul wanted, right? He tells him he's going to go blind because when Saul went blind for three days, that's when he figured it out. So I think Paul is trying to do the same thing for him. Bro, figure it out. I was just like you. You're going to be blind for a while so that you will begin to see. And I think what really got Paul, it's this little phrase right here. Stop making crooked the straight paths to the Lord. Buddy, you're making it hard to get to God. Don't make it hard to get to God. Don't complicate something that's supposed to be really simple. Jesus got super mad one time. When he went to the temple, the temple was a place that was supposed to be where you could come and meet God. And he got there and guess what he found? All these money changers, charging a lot of money 
so that you could get in the door to go see God. So the poor people were not able to get through that barrier to go see God. They didn't have the money. They couldn't do it. So what did Jesus do? He threw over their money tables. Don't do this. Don't make my father's house a den of robbers. You're putting a barrier and making it hard for people to get to God. Churches have to be very careful about not putting up barriers, making crooked the straight paths to God. We have to keep telling people it's easy to come to him. It's easy. Don't put up barriers. Don't do that. Religion puts up barriers to get to God. So here's the comparison I've used before. To me, religion is like a corral, right? It's got really strict kind of rules about who's in and out. You can always tell whose cattle is whose when they're in the corral. They got a brand on them. There's a fence that keeps them in. Even if they don't wanna be in there, they still, you still know, oh, those belong to that thing. They're in the corral. And religion always identifies who's in. The way you dress, certain kinds of behavior, grow your beard, whatever it is. There's, there's markers that say, you're in. And there's markers that say, those people are out. I think that's religion. I think Christianity is supposed to be something totally different. That Christianity is supposed to be like a watering hole in the Sahara. And what it does is it draws people in. I have a picture at home and I always look at it because it reminds me of how church is supposed to be. It's a big lion drinking water at this watering hole and probably five feet away from that line is a zebra drinking as well. Two enemies, if you would, knowing we have to drink here. We have to drink here. It does not matter. And Jesus said, I am water. If you drink of this water, you'll never thirst again. He's the draw. We're never supposed to put barriers up. We're never supposed to put fences up or rules that say you're in or out. We're supposed to say, do you love Jesus? Are you coming for Jesus? If you are, oh, you got it. That's how you get to the Father. The watering hole that's called Jesus. So I think this is why Paul gets mad. You're making it too complicated. And I want this guy, this governor to know Jesus. Don't make it complicated. So he gets ticked. And the governor, praise God, believes And they're so encouraged that now they head out for more. Verse 13. Now, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. Excuse me. Pam, no, that's right. Pamphylia. And John, I'm gonna have to get glasses. I'm telling you. If you're young, enjoy your vision. Enjoy enjoy eating carbohydrates. Enjoy your vision, because both those go away pretty soon. Or bigger print. I just need, I don't need glasses. I need a giant print Bible. That's what I need. (laughs) But they went from, on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. So this is the Jewish center that would be in every city. A synagogue, like a church, you'd come in there Saturday morning, there'd be a reading of scripture, there'd be hymns sung, there'd be encouragement. They go to that synagogue. After reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. 
That's what you call an open door. Okay. <laughs> so Paul stood up. All right. Motioning with his hand. Men of Israel. This is the first recorded sermon of the Apostle Paul. Read any list of the most influential people in history. Paul will be in the top 10. This is his first recorded message. Men of Israel, and you here who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. After destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he, no, but behold, after me is coming the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Okay, so here's what happens. Verse 13 tells us, John Mark leaves them. So people say maybe he got tired or sick or discouraged or something. I don't think so. It's not like he could get on a Greyhound bus and like, you know, take the gray doggy home. He's walking hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles. I don't think that's what happened. Because if you notice in verse 13, up to this point, it's always been Barnabas's name first and then Paul or Saul. Now what happens? Verse 13, Paul and his companions set sail. Whatever had happened on Cyprus, the cream had risen to the top, then Paul was now the leader. And I don't think Barnabas cared. He's like, man, yeah, dude, you're good. Go, lead, tell us, what should we do? But I think John Mark, Barnabas's nephew was like, I don't like that. I like it when my uncle's top dog. And so he splits off. This is gonna come back and haunt these two in a couple chapters. So he's out, he leaves, Verse 23 to me is just, for me, it's humorous. Paul is just, here's what he's doing. He's recapping the history of Israel and he's gonna show the whole point of our history is Jesus. But then in verse 23, he says it. And in my mind, I see the synagogue with, you know, these guys with big beards and, and the Torahs around and, and they're nodding as he's talking about history. And yeah, oh yeah, we know that. Oh, totally. And then some of them are probably nodding off and he's just preaching away. And then all of a sudden it's Jesus. And I can just see, what? No, who hired this guy? Oh my goodness. I can't believe that just happened. You ever hired the wrong speaker? It's a bummer. 
Ever been the wrong speaker? It's more of a bummer. I was invited to a young Marines ball like 10 years ago or something. One of the kids that was in the young Marines was here, made a recommendation. They called me. I'm like, sure. Yeah, I'd love to. That'd be awesome. I'd love to talk. I'd love to do that. And so we're talking, I'm talking to this guy. And I'm like, how do you want me to dress? He's like, just dress like you normally do on Sunday. Now I assumed he knew how I dressed on Sunday, which is just like this. I'm like, okay, great. So I show up there. I am the only one without a tie and with an untucked shirt. And it's like awkward. So when I get up there, I make a joke about it. Nobody laughs. It was just like, you fat hippie. What are you doing here? Like, oh man, that was the wrong dude. It's a bummer. So they're like, I can't believe this guy is sharing about Jesus. Oh my goodness, right? And he uses this history to say the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, all of it was driving to Jesus. And I love that he points out something. Verse 18, he says, for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. You know the story. God says, go into the land. The people say, we can't go in there. They're too tall. They're like 6'4". 6'2", we could take them. 6'4", we're not doing it, right? So instead, they wander in the wilderness. They don't believe God. Now you would think God would be mad at them, right? What does God do for 38 years straight? Takes care of them. Every morning there's manna. Every morning they come out, there's a Denny's Grand Slam breakfast for them. God made them breakfast. Just saying, I love you guys. Protects them, gives them water when they need it for 38 years straight. God takes care of them. And then David, of this man's offspring, or rather verse 22, I found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. What else did David do? <laughs> Murder and adultery. So amazing to me. God takes care of these guys that don't believe him. Then God here says, here is a man that will do my will. I think we are much harder on ourselves than God is. One of my favorite Psalms is Psalm 103, verses 13 and 14. It says this, that God knows our frame, that we are but dust. As a father pities his son, so God has pity for us. Whenever I think of that, about that verse, I always think about like raising my kids, especially when they start to walk. Has anyone ever done this? I've watched four kids, five kids learn to walk and I, I, I've never done this. But it's almost like we think about God like this. Like God is like, like us w- with a nine month old. Why aren't you walking yet? Come on. You've watched your mom do it for nine months. You've watched me do it for nine months. You've watched your four siblings walking around. What more example do you need? The dog will walk on its hind legs for a biscuit. What's wrong with you? Walk for crying out loud. And then when they take a step, you're like, you fell right down, really? No, that's not it at all, is it? Man, when they take that first step, what do you do? You go crazy. You video it. You send it to all the grandparents. You post it on Facebook and Instagram and every day. First step. You're not like first fall. Your first step. I think that's what God says. We get so caught up in our falls 
And I think God celebrates our steps. And we start realizing how God views you and how he thinks about you. It causes you to run to him instead of from him, which is his goal. Come to me. I know you're afraid. I have pity on you. Come to me. I celebrate the step. That's what I celebrate. I forgive you for the fall. I celebrate your step. So Paul points out these two really historic failures saying, no, God's good, right? So first he begins his message, real simple. Our history has been driving to Jesus. Next, it's the gospel. Death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, verse 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, these are Gentile God-fearers. To us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize nor understand the utterance of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found, him, found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to execute him. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days, he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to these people. And we bring you the good news that God promised to the fathers. This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus as also is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as a fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore he also in him, in another Psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his father and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. The gospel. History gets us to Jesus. Jesus gives us the good news. And he says the cross was the place where an innocent man was put to death. The cross is a full display of the depravity of humanity. That for convenience or because somebody's saying something that they didn't like or we don't like, kill him. Kill that guy. The only good thing about the cross is the resurrection, that Jesus is alive. That's a good thing. Proving that he paid for our sins, proving that he's God. But it's an ugly, hideous example of the depravity of humanity. And so Paul says they did it to an innocent man, but he's alive and he proves it all from the Psalms. So he uses the Bible that the Jews would be reading to show, listen, this has all been prophesied. And when you read this sermon and compare it to the first sermon Peter preaches in Acts chapter two, or the sermon Stephen preaches in chapter seven, they're very similar. Now, why is that? We know this. We know that Paul, 
when he was called Saul, listened to the sermon that Stephen preached and was part of the crew that puts him to death. So I'm sure Stephen, after he preached that and he was being stoned to death in chapter seven, was like, man, that was a bummer. No one heard that message. I sure didn't get through to them. You ever feel that way? You ever share the gospel with people or with your family or with your kids? And it just feels like, man, no one's listening. I'm not getting through to them. I think it's amazing what people actually pick up on. So when my second daughter was two years old, I was down on our couch and I was reading a business book because I was working in the business world then. And so it was like six in the morning, she came down, she had her little blanket and her little doll and she sat down right next to me and she goes, daddy, read me a book. I'm like, well, I'm reading a business book. If you want a different book, we can get you a different book. No, read me that book. I'm like, you're gonna be really bored with this book. No, just read it to me. So I'm like, okay, fine. So I just start reading the business book to her. And she, back in, she still does. She'll just sing, like just so she'll just start singing. So she's just starts to sing away and she's, you know, tucking her little dolly in and playing with her doll. And after like 10 minutes, she's just doing her own thing. Until I'm reading along and I come to this sentence that said at the end of it, and that's the bottom line. And she just starts cracking up. I'm like, what's so funny? Daddy, you said bottom. <laughs> I'm like, I didn't think you were listening to me. People are listening. Saul, now Paul, was listening. He heard that message by Stephen and it sunk in. Keep preaching, keep sharing. The Bible puts it like this. It's 1 Corinthians 3, 6. Some water, some plant, some water, and God gives the increase. Stephen had planted a seed 14 years before. It took 14 years for that seed to get an increase. Don't give up. You just keep planting, you just keep watering, and you trust that God will give an increase. So he said, look at our history is head to Jesus. Jesus brought us the good news and you need to respond. Verse 38, let it be known to you, application. Therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. This, this little phrase, my goodness, you can track this through Rome or through Romans. It's Pauline theology, right? This is it. He, he has it very early on. Beware therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you would not believe even if one tells it to you. This is a quote from Habakkuk and it's about the exile into Babylon. So what Paul is saying is, if you reject Jesus, you get exiled from the plan that God has for you. That's what he's saying. So, super simple, respond. And you'll be forgiven and you'll be freed. How good is that? The law cannot do it for you. Here's what the law is. The law is like a level that you put up on a wall and it tells you that wall's whacked out. Can you fix a whacked out wall with a level? 
No. It just tells you how whacked out the wall is. You have to get a different tool, a better tool to fix the wall. That's what the law did. The law, read Galatians 3, the law told us you're whacked out. And now you need the cross, you need forgiveness, you need Jesus. That's what it tells us. You need the Holy Spirit and you'll be forgiven and you'll be set free. Have you ever been doing something wrong and felt like the weight of that on you for your life? Maybe you were driving without insurance for a while or driving without a license or you're not wearing your seatbelt. What happens in those moments when you're doing something you know you should not be doing and you see a police officer? How do you feel? Are you like, I'm so thankful that they're here protecting the citizens of Grants Pass? No, you're like, ah, oh no, right? This constant fear of, oh no. Instead of knowing the real job is to protect, now it's like, oh no. Sadly, a lot of people go through life feeling that way about God. He's like this giant policeman ready to get them because they're under this weight of condemnation. Mostly they put on themselves, their sins, and they're waiting, oh no, he's gonna get me. Oh no, he's gonna make me have whatever, ankylitis, spondylitis, or he's gonna get me a epidemic, or he's gonna do something to me, oh no, right? They're just constantly living their life that way. And it's really sad to me. And Paul says, listen, in Jesus, that weight can be taken away, taken away, and you can be set free. Paul puts it like this. Peter puts it like this in Acts 3, 19. He says, repent so that the times of refreshing can come. If you can remember back when you first believed in Jesus, the shalom, the peace that you had, it was like, man, I remember just walking on sunshine, just like, wow, I feel so good because I've been set free. I've been forgiven. Brilliant. And so then he ends and I'll be really fast here. And as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them next Sabbath. I mean, this is best day ever. You need to preach longer, they're saying. Please, share more. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord like the virus is spreading. And when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles for so the Lord has commanded us saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. And they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. A couple quick points. Number one, 
bloom where you're planted. These guys start in Cyprus because that's what they knew. Wherever you're at, bloom. God has good works prepared in advance for you to walk in. He quotes Isaiah in verse 47. God has made you a light for wherever you're at right now. You're supposed to be a light right there. They need your light. Number two, people will make their own decisions about God. There's this fascinating little like tension. You have God's election in verse 48, right? And as many as were appointed to eternal life believe, there's God's election, no doubt, right there. But then back up to verse 46. He says, since you thrust it aside and judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we're turning to the Gentiles. Human responsibility. Both within a couple of words of each other. So which is it? Are humans responsible? Or is it all about God's election? Yes. That's the right answer. Yes. Let me try to explain it like this. If you're drowning and someone throws you a rope and you grab a hold of that rope and you get pulled out, who saved you? The person who threw you the rope and throw you the the person who threw you the rope and pulled you out, right? They're your savior. Okay? But let's imagine that the person who threw the rope is somebody that you don't care for. So if you're on the right of, better use this hand. If you're on the right of the spectrum, it's President Obama. He throws you that rope and you're like, I will not take that rope. And you drown. Who's responsible for you drowning? You, the rope was there. You just didn't like the person throwing it, okay? So if you're on the left, President Trump throws you the rope. You're like, I will not take that rope from you, no way. And you drown. Who's responsible? You, okay? Timmy, that's it. God saves us. We grab the rope. We grab the rope. If we don't grab the rope, we're judging ourselves unworthy of being saved by Jesus. So it's yes. Yeah, they're both there. I don't, it's a tension. It's like a tension bridge. If you get rid of either side of that, the, the whole thing just collapses. It can't hold the weight of scripture. It's just yes, okay? Luther called this, he called this the theologian's cross. You just gotta bear it. You can make analogies of it, but at the end of the day, it's, it's still this, hmm, okay, it's a dilemma. So I just say when people are like, this side, this side or that side, I go, yep, yep. Man, God's election is awesome. Yeah, totally. Hey, we're responsible. Yes, right? I tell people the best to me, the best theology is Jesus. He was 100% God and 100% man. Salvation, 100% God. I gotta grab the rope. I gotta grab the rope. I gotta say yes, or I judge myself unworthy of salvation, okay? And I know there's all kinds of holes you can poke in that. I get it. It's a tension. It's a theologian's cross, all right? So here's the whole deal. You share Jesus in a simple way and then you just trust God. That's, that's to me what they do. We're just gonna share Jesus. If you reject it, okay, no problem. 
we're gonna share Jesus. We're not gonna make it complicated. We're gonna make straight the path to Jesus. No, 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 I'm not gonna get distracted by all those things. Listen, it's Jesus. You need to know Jesus because so often we make it crooked by trying to give answers that are too complex. Then finally, be battle ready. Be battle ready. The end here is they get run out of town. There are gonna be people that do not like the message of Jesus and you have to be okay with that. You need to be kind, considerate, not pushy, right? These guys aren't like, we're not leaving, we're gonna keep. No, okay, no problem. And I think sometimes Christians can be too pushy with the message. These guys just say, okay, we'll go to the next spot. I think there's wisdom in saying, no problem. If you don't wanna talk about this, if you don't wanna hear about Jesus, no problem, we'll go to the next spot. And what we'll see is there is a pattern in the book of Acts, especially in this first missionary journey. Go in, share Jesus, persecution, people believe, and they move to the next spot. They just do it over and over and over again. I think that's good evangelism. Those that do not wanna receive it, no problem. Love you, keep praying for you, door open to you, be a good neighbor, be a good friend, be a good coworker, still do all those things, but I'm not gonna shove the message on you anymore because it's not healthy. So be battle ready. So Jesus, this day. We thank you that you have thrown the rope to us, pulled us out of our sins and our garbage, given us your spirit that will transform us renewed our minds, blessed us with a family. I pray that we would be a group of people that take your good news and share it in a kind, considerate, loving way with those that you have planted us in. I pray that this day, our hearts would be encouraged by how you worked through Paul and Barnabas. I pray that this day we would know that you're the same God that spread the good news around the entire globe. You still do that today. That we would take hope that you can take bad things, the evil of people, brokenness, and you can bring beauty out of it. The cross became the means for the resurrection. And that no matter what's happening in our lives today, we would know you can use it and you can redeem it and we would trust you with it. So would you go with us? And would you use us? May we be willing to be used by you. And I pray these things in your name, amen. Amen, God bless you guys.